And let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we come now to your word and I pray that you would help us. God, you'd open our minds uh, to understand, most importantly, open up our souls, our hearts to receive uh, deep within us this truth. May it echo true in us and may we trust this word and live our lives by it in the power of the Spirit, having been cleansed by Christ. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Turn, please, to Acts chapter 2. I want to read again, verses 42 to 47. I say again, I think this is our third week on this passage. We have one more, I believe, after this one. So Acts chapter 4, verse 42, please. Hear the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, uh, day by day, those who were being saved. I want to concentrate uh, this week on the expression, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Okay, They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That they, again, are those who were part of the the followers of Jesus in the upper room, that 120 plus then, those 3,000 who became followers of Jesus after the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Remember how all this is set up? Uh, There's an ancient feast in Jerusalem called Pentecost. It's seven weeks or so after the Passover time. It's another celebration that the Jews would have. Um, That one commemorating their leaving from Egypt, Pentecost, commemorating that God was their provider. It was a harvest kind of first fruits a celebration, and also a celebration of commemorating when they became a nation when God gave them the law. And so here, the men of, 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 of Israel who lived in Jerusalem and, and even all over the world, because there were Jews spread out all over the place, were to come back for this Feast of Pentecost. And so here they were in Jerusalem for this feast. Uh, Jesus, kind of as a parallel storyline to all of this, Jesus had, had been... Uh, had lived, obviously, had been crucified, had risen from the dead, had come to his disciples after his rising from the dead, met with them, and gave them various instructions. He said to them that they were to wait in Jerusalem, and, and a day would come when they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that they would be empowered to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the whole earth, uh, to the ends of the earth. And so they did that. They waited in Jerusalem. And Jesus ascended. So Jesus is up, uh, if you will, or ascended, wherever, whatever direction ascended is uh, in that context. And uh, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. 
And he does indeed send his spirit on the day of Pentecost when, when all these men were in Jerusalem from everywhere. And so he, he sends his spirit upon them, uh, pours it out. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, and, and empowered then. In fact, as you might remember from that passage, uh, there's a great wind, meaning the very presence of God is there. And tongues is of fire kind of dancing on their heads. And the apostles speak in languages that they had never learned so that... They could be his witnesses so that uh, people would hear of the mighty works of God. And then Peter preaches a sermon and says, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel had spoken of many generations before. And now it's come. The reign of the Messiah is here. The Holy Spirit is upon us. And we're to witness of the truth of Christ. And so he speaks to them of Christ. And at the end of his message, 3,000 put their faith in Christ. 3,000 came to faith. 3,000 believed. And so there they were. The question is, what are we going to do? And so they banded together and they devoted themselves, the scripture said, that is, they revolved their lives around. The most important thing in the context of their lives was the apostles' teaching, learning about Jesus, learning about what had happened to them, learning about what this meant for the rest of their lives. No doubt learning the command of Jesus that they were to love each other. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That is, they were joined together, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. The scripture tells us that we've all been baptized in one spirit into one body. And so the Holy Spirit comes and not only unites us together with God, but unites us with each other. And so they're in context of fellowship, of partnership, of sharing this common life together, being in communion with one another. And so they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves um, to this fellowship. And then it says they devoted themselves also to the breaking of bread. You know, what does that mean? Well, first it means they ate together. That should be a big shock. They ate together. Now, we don't know how all that was arranged. There were 3,000 plus of them. Uh, so it was a, a fairly large church, if you will, in Jerusalem. Uh, nobody complained that the church was too big or any of that. There's nothing about church growth or church size being too small or too big. And there were 3,000 plus of them. And somehow they found themselves eating together. Again, whether it was formally arranged or whether it was spontaneous, we really don't know how all that worked. But it's likely that it was spawned, at least in part, because there were so many people from out of town. Again, there were so many people who came from the whole of the whole known world, as Luke puts it earlier in chapter 2. And so here they were all together in one place, many from out of town. How would they eat? It isn't like there was a McDonald's or a Burger King on every corner or something like that in Jerusalem in those days. And so how would they eat? Well, they would be invited over. Well, you're from out of town, come and eat with us. We might not know each other at all, but, but we have this common life that we share together in Christ. He's joined us together. Therefore, come to my house. Come over and we'll eat together. And they did it very gladly. You can only imagine if these people were there and, and had no other means of eating uh, to be invited. I remember when Karen and I, when I was in seminary and things were fairly slim from time to time, we would often pray that someone would invite us for dinner. Uh, we would try to go to church on Sundays and look quite pitiful. And uh, just in the hope that someone would invite us over. And I suspect, except not having to look quite pitiful, they were invited over uh, to, to break bread, to eat together in each other's houses. They were, 
They were Jews. They were Israelites. They, they would know something about caring for one another. They would know that they were to care for the poor, if you will, for those in need. There are all kinds of cultural and, and, and biblical regulations and understandings about how they were to treat those who were poor, uh, even to the degree, as you know, of, of, of leaving parts of their fields uh, unharvested so those who, who were in need could come and, and, and harvest for themselves. Um, they knew that they were to treat strangers kindly, because they too had once been strangers in a foreign land, as the scripture puts it. And so they were to treat one another kindly, even the strangers, if you will, among them, to be kind and bring into table fellowship uh, those who were strangers among them. So it would be something that they would do, but it would be more than that. It would be an expression of their fellowship together. It would be an expression of the work of the Holy Spirit in uniting them uh, together. Because interestingly enough, we see two things in the work of the Holy Spirit coming together here. On the one hand, Jesus said, you're going to be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That is, you'll testify to the truth about who I am. But then you remember that the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his disciples and he said this to them. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love each other as I've loved you. By this, that is, by loving each other as I've loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Saying, listen, the way that people will know that you belong to me is if you love each other. And so you see, there's no way we can be witnesses of Jesus unless we love each other. No matter what we say about him, if we don't love each other, then our words are simply empty words. Those two things go together. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses and therefore loving each other. So clearly one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us is to join us together, unite us together, and cause us to love each other. They go together, both of those. And so... If they're going to be witnesses, and they were witnesses because God was adding to their number every day. People were hearing about Jesus. People were seeing Jesus in action. They were loving one another. They were breaking bread together. Can you imagine the scene? 3,000 people in Jerusalem, small portion of the population, but 3,000 people in Jerusalem meeting together at the temple. They had no other good place to meet. It was before building programs, so they didn't have a a church building other than the temple to go to. That wouldn't last for long because God was going to take that out out of circulation in 70 AD when the temple was leveled. But they were meeting there in various rooms, no doubt, in the temple. And they would pray together there. And and then they would go and they would eat together in each other's homes. And could you imagine the witness of all of that? These strangers coming together and sharing this kind of fellowship with each other. Because you see, there's something about eating together in every culture that's significant. It's as if people are saying, we need this in order to sustain our life. We need food in order to sustain our lives. We can't live without it. So come to my house and I'll keep you alive. Come to my house and I'll share with you the very sustenance of life. I'll share with you that which we need to live. So there's something very significant. Anthropologists tell us if you go from culture to culture to culture to culture, you'll find this sense of fellowship around eating to be very 
significant. But it's even more significant for these people, these first followers of Jesus. Because yes, it would be an example of their fellowship together, or work of the Holy Spirit together, but they knew something of what we would call covenant meals. As, as, as Jewish people, they would understand this idea of Passover, for instance. They would understand this notion that, that God has made promises to us and then he's given us a meal that would be a sign and a seal of his promise. A sign because everything about that meal would point to what he had promised. A seal, meaning this was authentic. This was real. This was God's stamp saying you can trust what you see here. You can trust what you eat here. You can trust this event to be pointing you really to me. They understood that, that, that covenant meal of Passover. They understood what that meant. Oh, you remember, there was that fateful night when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And God had said there's going to be one more plague, really one more, this final judgment upon Egypt. And the judgment would be that the firstborn son would die. Well, how is it then that the firstborn son of the Israelites would live? And he says, here's what I want you to do. I'll provide for you a substitute. And what you need to do by faith is to take that lamb and kill it. Take its blood, sprinkle it, paint it on your doorposts so that you're living under that blood. This whole community living under the blood of this lamb. And then what I want you to do is take that lamb that you have killed and I want you to eat it. I want you to eat all the edible parts, nothing left over at the end. All of it's gone. If your family's not big enough in order to eat a whole lamb, invite another family, invite other people. All of this has to be eaten. And so what you're going to be on this night is a whole group of people who are covered by the blood of this lamb and filled with this lamb. So this lamb is covering you and in you. You're just lamb, blood, meat, people. That's who you are. Covered and filled with it. And my angel of judgment will pass by. And they were to take that meal for the rest of their history, really. And they were to eat that meal because mixed with that lamb part were bitter herbs that would remind them that their slavery was bitter. But yet they were delivered from that bitterness by the graciousness of God. And not only that, they would have unleavened bread with it, which would signify for them that they had to leave in haste. Not enough time for the bread to rise. You've got to eat it now. You've got to have it now because this is going to happen right away. And so there they found themselves year after year celebrating this Passover, remembering this event, a sign to point to God's promise to them that I'm your deliverer, a seal saying this is really true. You can trust me. I'll provide for you. I'll give you a substitute so that you can live. And then, of course, Jesus comes along. The night before he was crucified, he met with his disciples for that Passover meal. And at that point in time, he says, I want you to show you what this has been pointing to. I want you to show the, what this has been signifying. All this time he took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you remember, after Jesus was crucified and 
there's a great deal of discouragement amongst the disciples of Jesus, so much so that some decided to go back home. Uh, there were two men who were on a particular road going to a town called Emmaus. They were just walking along, and they looked rather discouraged and depressed. And all of a sudden, Jesus showed up. I have to smile when I say that. This, this is a beautiful scene. I, I, just, I just think it's, it's one of those great pictures in the Bible. Two men, discouraged, walking along. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him because they thought he was dead. They had seen him crucified. And they assumed, therefore, he was dead. Good assumption. And as they're walking along, Jesus says to them, why are you so downcast? Why are you just so discouraged? I said, where have you been, man? Don't you know what's just happened in Jerusalem? Jesus has been crucified. And he's dead. And they're walking along. And so Jesus, though they don't know who he is, reveals some of the scripture to them. Still, they don't know who he is until they come to this one particular point. And Luke has this for us in Luke chapter 24. Uh, in verse 30, no, verse 28. So as they drew near to the village to which they were going, he, that is Jesus, acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it. And gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. There's always something in this expression of breaking bread that's bigger than lunch. That's bigger than dinner. That's bigger than just, hey, come to my house and we'll share sustenance of life together so that we can make it through the night or make it through the day and we won't die. There's something about the breaking of the bread to Christians, to followers of Jesus, that means this is more than just sustenance for physical life. This is sustenance for eternal life. This is the very basis upon our fellowship. This is why we're joined together. This is how we're joined together. This is so significant to us that in this we finally recognize him. We finally see him. We finally wake up to the fact that this is Jesus in our midst. And that's precisely what happened to them. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so it's always significant in scripture when it's spoken of believers breaking bread together. Oh, no doubt they shared various kinds of meals together. But no doubt it centered, it focused, it consummated in this sense of being in fellowship with each other because Christ is present in our midst and being able to see him these eyes but to perceive his very presence among us in the breaking of the bread. Now we learn a great deal about this from the church in Corinth, interestingly enough. Uh, because it's there that Paul lays out kind of the specifics of the Lord's Supper, of this breaking of bread together. Uh, but we learn a great deal here because, because of the context. 
the reason that Paul speaks to them about the Lord's Supper, about breaking bread together, is because they were doing it wrong. And it wasn't so much on how they were administering it, though he gives them some details about that again. He had already told them about this. But he gives them some, some details about this again. But the reason that they were doing it wrong was because of the fact that they weren't doing it in love for each other. And he said, that's a complete contradiction of sharing this meal together. If you're not loving each other, then it's impossible for you to really be eating what could be called the Lord's Supper. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. The apostle writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So we get the tone of this. He's not going to commend them for what they're doing. Uh, which is a nice way of saying, I'm going to blast you. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, just as an aside, that's a horrible thing to say to a church. All right? To say that your coming together is for the worse and not the better means you're missing completely what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. Coming together and church should always be joined. But he's saying, no, it's not good that you come together. Because when you come together, as he's going to put it in a few sentences, you're despising the church of God. In fact, you're profaning the body and blood of Jesus. And it's important for us to, to see what profanes the body and blood of Jesus. What, what causes them to be despising the church. Um, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, there are divisions we read about in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, which are a little different than these divisions. Notice these divisions. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order for those that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you dis, did, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. He's saying, listen, here's what's happening. The division uh, at this point is over the haves and the have-nots. Over the well-to-do, or at least relatively well-to-do, those who have food and drink and over those who do not. And so you plan a church supper, and what happens is that some bring food and others can't because they haven't got food. And rather than wait for everyone to gather so you can share it, those who bring their food eat it as gluttons, you know? And they drink too much. And so you find themselves stuffed and drunk while others are hungry. And he says, that can't ever be the Lord's Supper. There can't ever be divisions among you like this, sort of based on what one has and what one doesn't have in terms of economics and finances and all of that. And he says, when you do that, you despise the church because you're humiliating the least of these brothers of Jesus. Perhaps one of the most... hair-raising 
parables of Jesus is the one in Matthew chapter 25 wherein he comes to people and he separates the nations if you will the nations of the world and, and judgment happens on the basis of how the brothers of Jesus are treated turn there quickly I didn't plan to do this but let's do it anyway Matthew 25 Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So you get the picture. This is, this is not simply a judgment. This is the judgment. This is, as the Bible talks about judgment scenes, never get the impression, though you'll always get the impression of this if you watch TV preachers, but, but never get the impression that what we have is a series of different kinds of judgments at different points in any particular time. There's one judgment, and it, what we read are different sort of nuances of that judgment, different peaks at it, different, different, different angles to understand it. One judgment still. So here is the judgment, and, and it's pictured now as, as, as a shepherd shepherding sheep, uh, separating his flock, sheep and goats. Goats not good, sheep good. I mean, that's, that's the, sort of the way you want to be sheep in this picture, all right? Um, and he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and come and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is essentially saying, I can tell who my people are. Because my people are those who love their brothers. I went through last Sunday the litany in First John about John saying, if you say you uh, love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. That's why Jesus could say, people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. As I've loved you. There's something about loving other believers. Loving people in the family of God. And he's saying so much so. That, that when you help each other. When you love each other. When you care for each other. It's caring for me. It's loving me. I come to you. In the person of this sick or this imprisoned brother or sister in Christ. And so when you love them you love me. In fact I know. I can tell. Because you could say, well, isn't the judgment based upon whether or not we believe in Jesus? Are those who believe in Jesus forgiven and given eternal life and those who don't, not forgiven and thus not given eternal life? And the answer, of course, is yes. How do you know? Well, Jesus says, I can, also, I can tell by your profession of faith, but I can also tell, in fact, perhaps even more, honestly tell, whether you believe in me is, how do you treat each other? Do you really love each other? And so he says, listen, you can't come together in a meal and ignore the least of these brothers of mine. 
that's not my supper. I don't know what you're eating, but that's not the meal that I've put on for you because I've joined you together. And so you can't despise each other. You can't reject each other. You can't divide yourself off from any brother or sister of mine for any reason other than this momentary church discipline, which is to be redemptive to bring them back. So you simply can't do that. And so that's the point here in 1 Corinthians. That's the error. It wasn't that you probably couldn't give them a multiple choice test and multiple choice test and say, what's the bread stand for? What's the, what's the wine stand for? So forth and so on. They'd get all that. But then where they failed was they weren't eating it together. They were excluding some that should never have been excluded from that table. They weren't loving each other. They missed it. Verse 23, Paul begins with the word for or because. Um, the reason that you're doing this improperly, and therefore the reason I have to tell you about this supper again, is because of this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he's saying, this is, this is what the Lord gave to us. In fact, he says, you've already received this. I've already given this to you, but let me give it to you again. I want you to understand that first and foremost, when we come together uh, to break bread, it's a remembering of Jesus. We're remembering him. We're thinking about him, not some fantasy of Jesus, not some made-up Jesus, not some Jesus that isn't consistent with what we know to be true about him from the scripture, but we're remembering this only Jesus. We're thinking about him. Our minds are wrapped around him. The focus of our attention is upon him. And he's given us sort of these props to remind us of him, this bread and this wine, or bread, in our case, this grape juice. And he says, here it is. He said, remember the time that Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body. When he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're to remember Jesus. We're to remember everything about him. We're to remember that he's the incarnate son of God, the Lord of glory, come to take on flesh and dwell among us. This very one who lived a perfect life for us. This very one who died for the sins of sinners. This very one who rose again. This very one who ascended. This very one who now rules and reigns. This very one who will come back again. So that we can understand all that he did and the benefits, the blessings, all that's true of us because of him. All that's true of us in him. We're to remember that. We're to think about that. Our minds are to be upon that. And of course we know that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was speaking figuratively. It isn't that, that here we have before us in this bread and juice, uh, the, the literal body of Jesus, the literal blood of Jesus. Uh, the very natural way of taking that is, is in a figurative way. When Jesus first said those words to his disciples, he was standing right there. And he gave them bread and he said, this is my body. And they would be able to discern what was bread and what was body. And so in a very natural way, just in the same way that he said he was the door, they never checked him for hinges, right? He was speaking figuratively. 
I want you to understand what I mean by that. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. He spoke in those kinds of terms all the time. And so they would understand that he's saying, when you, when you feel this bread, when you eat this bread, when you drink this wine, I want you to, to be thinking of me, to be reminded of me, to know who I am. And even though now at least he's not here physically present, materially present with us, he's still present with us. He's here. He wants us to know he will be with us always. And so here he is. And you say, well, he, he's with me all the time, isn't he? And the answer, of course, is yes. But in these moments, he says, I want you as a company of people to come and break bread. And when you do that, I want you to know that I'm here. This will be a reminder. This will be a tangible thing that you taste and touch and smell and eat. That you'll know that I'm with you. And that'll, be, that'll help you to, re, to remember that I'm with you always, most especially even now. Here, I'm here, present with you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. He says, come on. You know that I'm present here. I'm present. This is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. It's a sign. It says there really is forgiveness of sins in Jesus as one who lived and died for you. That's really true. It's God's seal saying, when you're here, you can, it, it will remind you. It will say, yes, the gospel really is true. Take it. Eat it. Live it. Believe it. The apostle says it's a proclamation for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation. It's a witness. See, that's why we have to do it together for it to be a witness. By this all people, you'll know that you're my disciples if you love each other. We can't do this separately. We can't exclude various ones from it. This is a deal we invite every, all Christians to come and say, come on at the table because we're proclaiming that, that, that Jesus has died. And in his dying, we're proclaiming there is forgiveness of sins in his name. We're proclaiming that we're justified by believing in him. We're proclaiming that he declares us to be righteous and accepts us as his own and he adopts us as his children. We're proclaiming that his Holy Spirit lives within us and is forming in us the very image of God in us. He's conforming us to the very image of Christ. That's all true. And he's saying a day will come when he'll return. And when he returns, then we realize that we'll receive a body that's imperishable and we'll live forever with him. He's saying you're proclaiming all of that. You're proclaiming the fact that he's risen and he's ascended and that he now rules and reigns on high. That's where he is and he's doing his work and nothing can thwart him because the day is going to come when he will return. So keep doing this until he comes. When he comes, you don't need to do this anymore. It'll be a better feast with him but keep doing this and that will let you know grant you assurance that all of that is true and you say well if it's a proclamation to whom are we proclaiming it to us all of us here we're proclaiming it again it's, it's a word of witness to us believe it it's proclaiming to any who are here are unbelievers it's a word of witness of the truth of Christ believe it it's a proclamation to all the powers and principalities in heavenly places.
And we're defying them even as we come to this table and saying, Satan, you cannot have us because we've been bought with a price by another who rules and reigns even over you. And therefore, we do this even before him who hates us. It's a proclamation, you see, of all of that. And so, when we come, you see, we come to this table as if we're coming to Jesus. We come to him, the one present with us, and we come with our sins, and we come with our burdens, and we come with our weaknesses, and we come with our griefs, and we come with our difficulties, and, 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 and we come with our temptations, and we come with, with all the things that trouble us, and we come with our very lives, our hopes and dreams, and all of that. And we come with all of those, with all of that stuff, and we bring it to Jesus, and we remember him, and we proclaim his death, his blood over all that. And we put it under him, and we leave with the assurance that he's forgiven our sins. We leave with the assurance that we belong to him. We live with the assurance that he's justified us and declared us righteous in his sight. We leave the table with the encouragement to know that he's at work in us. We leave with the encouragement and the confidence to know that he's in glory, ruling and reigning, and nothing can thwart him. We leave with the, with the confidence knowing that nothing can come into our lives unless it comes through our Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns over all things for the sake of his church. We realize that, that, that when we leave this table... We know that he's at work in us to conform us to his image, to provide that for us, which is ultimately good, that is, shows him to be true and conforms us to his image. And that a day will come when indeed he'll return and the kingdom will come in all its fullness and we will live with him forever with a body that's imperishable that will know no sickness, no disease, no tears. No grief, no poverty, no injustice, but with him. But we can't leave any of us out. Not only in the physical taking of this, but, but in our lives together. Notice how he puts it, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. It must come in a worthy manner. What is that? Verse 28. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, now some of you in your translations will have discerning the body of the Lord. Just know that little expression of the Lord is not in the oldest manuscript. So the more literal translation would read as I'm reading here. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now what's Paul saying there? At least one thing, if not two. If he's referring to the body of the Lord, that is the body of Jesus, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand Jesus and these elements. Don't come unless you understand that this is his, that he gave his life for you so that you could be forgiven your sins. Don't come unless you rightly discern the body of the Lord here. His very presence 
his body, his blood for you that you might be forgiven your sins. Don't come. But there's something else to this. And I think contextually in this passage, this is the point. Discerning the body. Us. The body of Christ. Don't come unless you understand that you're not coming alone. Don't come unless you understand that you're coming with believers in Christ and that you're knit together with them and you love them. If you have a haughty spirit and an arrogant spirit and if anything in you is looking down upon another one who professes the name of Christ, don't come until you repent. If there's someone who's a believer in Christ that you despise, don't come until you repent. If there are those that you would rather not come who profess faith in Christ and eat at this table, don't come until you're ready to eat with them. If there are those that you look down upon or those that you look so up upon that you feel like you can't be in their presence either, don't come. That would despise the table of the Lord. Because it's always true, but most especially true, at the table of the Lord. That there's no difference between us. That if God has saved us, it means that he has saved us. And there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is salvation in no one other than Christ. And that comes only by his grace. Nothing by our works. In fact, so desperate is this truth that the Apostle writes, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when when you come together, it won't be for judgment. And he's simply saying, When you come together to eat, come together. To do anything less would be to despise Christ himself. For this is how he has made us. One author puts it like this concerning the significance of this supper. He says... Could there be churches on either side of the tracks that took no account of each other being baptized in the capitalism instead of Christ if they really understood the meaning of this supper? Or if they understood the meaning of this supper, could they be divided along party lines, a political party instead of Christ, racism instead of Christ, culture, Christianity instead of Christ? Of course, the answer to all that is no, because in Christ there's no... Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, rich, poor, cool, dorky, old, young, white, black, American, Asian, European, Central American. There's no Democrat, Republican, communist. There's no popular person. There's no unknown one. There's no fat or fit. We're simply all one in him. And thus we come together. Because it was that night that Jesus was betrayed 
the night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion. Then he was together with his disciples. He said he eagerly desired to eat with them. And it was on that night that he stressed two things. One, the coming of the Spirit so that they would know that he would be with them in the Holy Spirit. And the second thing he stressed with them, that they were to love each other. So much so that he said, I'm telling you these things so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be made complete. Saying, listen, there's no joy unless you come together. There's no joy unless you love each other. And on that night he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my, my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And this he gave to his disciples as well. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Pray with me. Father in heaven. I pray even now that you would take this bread. This juice set it aside. In the sense that. It's set apart so that it reminds us. Enables us to think. Upon Jesus as we feel it. As we smell it. As we taste it. As we see it. That our thoughts would turn to Jesus. The one who has loved us. The one who lived for us. Who died for us. Who rose again. Who rules and reigns. The one and whom we trust that our sins would be forgiven, the one who's caused us to be adopted as your children, the one whose righteousness we are covered with, that you might declare us justified, the one in whose image we're being conformed, the one who one day will return. Grant to us eternal life, bodies imperishable, to live forever with him. Father, I pray as we come that we will receive from you the benefits that Christ has bought for us so that we could leave this table with encouragement and strength and faith, assurance. But most especially, God, I pray that we would gather around this table today that All that we might have against each other might be forgiven. That we might not despise the table of the Lord, that we might honor Christ. That this would be a time of renewal for us, of our relationship with you, relationship with each other. Please forgive us or attitudes that we may have against Christians we think who are unworthy with whom we so differ that we dislike. Father, enable us then to come here together that Christ may be honored that we might proclaim his death until he comes.
And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, meaning that you understand that you're not all that. You understand that there's no difference among us, that we're all sinners, but yet each of us believes and depends upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, causing our sins to be forgiven, adopted, justified, to be sanctified, glorified, and knit together. I need to desire to live a life now that is consistent with following after Christ. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in a cup, and remember that everybody who's dipped in that cup before you belongs to you in Christ. Please come.